Hey, we're in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Um, let me kind of explain where we're at. Our theme in Hebrews is, has been, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. He is writing to a group of Jewish believers who've gone through incredible hardship. And he's basically saying, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't go back. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to things that you can see with the eye. We're, he's writing to a group of people who are walking by faith and not by sight. And this is incredibly difficult because they came from the law, the temple. They came from being, uh, seeing really physical and visible things to now having to walk by faith. And here, here's what he's saying. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Uh, endure. Press in. He knows there's persecution. He knows there's a danger of drifting, that people are turning their backs on Jesus, that they're going back to former things. For us, you guys, it's not necessarily that we would go back to Judaism, but what is there in our life that we might have a tendency to go back to? What is there in our life where you go, this is getting hard, following Jesus is difficult, I want to go back. The author's writing to people kind of with that mindset. And he's saying, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Whether it's Abraham, Moses, the law, the priesthood, everything, Jesus is better. And so his point over and over again is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. And again, for us who probably need endurance right now, for us who are probably tired and exhausted by just the circumstances of life, um, I think this is a really good word for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, they had a biblical understanding we don't have. They had a really good understanding of the Old Testament. Even Christians who've been in the church for a while don't maybe have the best complete understanding of the Old Testament and why uh, the laws are the way they are and why the prophets are set the way they're set up. And so there's a lot of, I guess, background we maybe don't have. And so we're trying to even like paint that picture so we can appreciate what the author is saying. So let me just say this. Um, Today's going to be a little different in this way. We've slowed down the past couple of weeks. We've looked at just a couple of verses. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Last week, we looked at verse 14 through 16. Today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Today, we're going to go over a lot of scripture. We're going to look at chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And then we're going to go into chapter 7, verse 1 through 28. So we're going to cover a ton of scripture. And the reason is, and here's why. It's actually, we'll put the verse up. Hebrews 5, verse 11 Listen to what this says. Jesus, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then he kind of gets sidetracked and talks about how they've been dull of hearing. And then he, start, he starts addressing some issues within this community. And then in chapter 7, he picks back up on this theme of Melchizedek. So here's what I love about the author. He's like, I want to tell you a lot more about this guy Melchizedek, but you're not able to hear. You become dull of hearing. And then it's almost like he couldn't resist. By the time he gets to chapter 7, he's like, okay, let me get back to that comment. Let me tell you who this Melchizedek guy is. So the author, he's like, he's like I want to address some issues among you. You're dull of hearing. And he starts going on that. But then he's like, let me get back to that person I brought up, which is Melchizedek. Now, maybe you've heard of Melchizedek. Maybe you haven't heard of Melchizedek. Maybe um, there's a side of it where you go, I have questions about this guy. Who is he? He's kind of mysterious. Um, There's a lot of ideas around who is Melchizedek. Is that Jesus in the Old Testament? We want to talk about that. We want to look at that. But there's a lot of mystery around this guy. Now, here's, um, I guess, the point I want you to see today specifically. The author is bringing up an issue we wouldn't understand or really care about, but it's such a good topic to bring up, which is this. Jesus last week was called the great high priest. He's ready for their questions and um, their kind of pushback on that. He's saying, Jesus is our great high priest. And they're going, how? Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Only the tribe of Levi and specifically Aaron's sons could be high priests. So priests were Levites. And the high priest were the sons of Aaron. How could Jesus be called a high priest if he's not a Levite and he's not a son of Aaron? And so he's actually anticipating their disagreement with the fact that he said Jesus is our high priest. And he's pointing to this character named Melchizedek to say, actually, Jesus is a part of a great high priesthood, one even before Aaron, and that is Melchizedek. So the author is brilliant. He's doing something that Again, we might not really appreciate this, but I'm so thankful because if you do the Jewish upbringing and mindset, you're going, yeah, how is Jesus high priest? He's from the tribe of Judah. That's the kingly tribe. He's not from the priestly tribe. 
And so the author anticipates their, their question, their pushback, and he says, let me show you how Jesus is also the high priest according to a different order. So this is a brilliant argument. Now let me just kind of show you the chapter titles, what we're doing. Um, chapter five and seven deals with Jesus having a better priesthood. Chapter eight talks about a better covenant. Chapter nine talks about a better sanctuary. And chapter 10 talks about a better sacrifice. So remember I told you that the whole point of Hebrews is Jesus is better, he's better, he's better. This chapter, chapter five and seven is he's a better high priest and he's showing us through the lens of this guy, Melchizedek. And then we're gonna look later at a better covenant, a better sacrifice uh, and a better sanctuary. So we're gonna kind of walk through this, uh, but I want you to kind of see the big picture. Now, let me just say this in case you're like, are we gonna go back? Yes, next week we'll go back to finish chapter five. We'll go back into chapter six, don't worry. Um, But I think the author, as we saw in verse 10 and 11 goes, I wanna tell you more about this guy. And he's like, but you're dull of hearing. He gets sidetracked and then he goes, okay, fine. I'll tell you more about this guy. So that's why we're gonna piece this together. Cool, makes sense, sounds good. I can't see you nodding at home, but in my mind, I'm just imagining everyone's nodding. Yes, I agree. Um, there's a lot of text here. So I'm gonna pray first. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna read the text um, as time goes on. So let's just pray. And um, as I was praying for you guys this morning, my prayer for us right now is this. There's going to be a lot of text here, a lot of truth. Do not get overwhelmed. I hope we can slow down and this will make sense. I hope this, you'll see the big picture of this. Um, but I also want to say this. I believe there's so much. Scripture is, is written for many reasons. One is to just simply set us free with the truth of who Jesus is. So knowing that Jesus is a great high priest, knowing that he's called according to the order of Melchizedek, knowing that he's the perfect, complete high priest that we've always needed. This is supposed to set us free from certain mindsets, anxieties, um, maybe just the issue of sin and shame and guilt. And the author's hope and intent is to show us how Jesus is a better, great high priest. And um, I just don't want this to be information to you. I hope this is more than information. My prayers that the Holy Spirit takes this, the truth about Jesus and just sets us free from some of those things. So why don't we just pray that that would happen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that um, it truly is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. God, for those of us, for those who are joining us this morning, and maybe they, um, this is a lot of scripture, it might be overwhelming. I just ask that your spirit would just bring clarity to this that God maybe, it wouldn't just be about learning new things, but that Jesus, your word would shape us and form us. That God, we would just be more than even inspired by who Jesus is. That God, we would just fall more in love with you, more in love with how brilliant you are, with how incredible you are, about how you show us this appearance of this high priest just for a moment of time to show how it speaks of Jesus. And God, I ask that you just do something new in our lives, God, the shame, the guilt, the sin that just overwhelms us, that ensnares us, that you'd set us free, that you've saved us from that, that you've also called us, as your word says, we are part of this royal priesthood. And so, Jesus, we ask that we just embrace what it is you've done for us, not fight it, not be uh, just those who don't receive it, but that right now we would slow down and hear from you and receive from you. In your name, Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. As a teenager, my sister used to love to watch mystery murder television shows, um, specifically like Law and Order. Um, I would say even more so Law and Order SVU. I don't know if you guys ever watch any sort of like Law and Order or Sherlock Holmes, or there's like a murder or there's a mystery and you're trying to figure out who did it. And then you start taking bets like this person did, I know they did it. And a lot of times it's like that insignificant person that maybe the hero, you're like, there's no way he did. There's no way she did. Um, and it's fun to kind of like navigate this. We've kind of learned, I kind of learned that they always show the, the person who did it within like the first 23 minutes. By like minute 23, I was like, that's who it is. That's how I usually try to piece it together. But it's fun to like look at those things because here's what, again, we learned. We learned this. Um, don't discredit anyone. Um, anyone is susceptible or anyone in a sense, like no one's in it incidental. No one was incidental in those kind of stories. If you just saw a person that like walked by and said something, you're like, ooh, what was that? Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. Um, when you look at the Old Testament, there are some really, really famous people. Um, obviously, you have Moses, you have Abraham, you have Ruth, you have Sarah. I mean, you have people that really stand out, like men and women who just stand out. They have their own books of the Bible or huge chunks of scripture dedicated to them. 
but there's someone that seems incidental to us that might not make sense. Like, who was that person? Then he's mentioned a thousand years later in the book of Psalms, and then he's mentioned here in Hebrews, and that guy is Melchizedek. Melchizedek was mentioned in Genesis 14. He really wasn't mentioned for almost a thousand years when David wrote about him in the Psalms, and now he's mentioned by this author. And so he seems like an incidental character, like, who's Melchizedek? What is this guy? Um, Who is he? And the author goes, let me tell you about this guy. And then he gives us a great um, explanation of who he is, which we'll get to in a second. But this is why we're going to look at a lot of scripture today to not just talk about Melchizedek, because it's not about Melchizedek. By the way, if you haven't gotten this point yet, every scripture is about Jesus. When we study the Bible, we look at how does Melchizedek speak of every one, every person, every character, even if it's an anti-type. We're trying to see how does this speak of the gospel in some way? How does this speak of Jesus? So um, we're going to do this. Here's the four points I want us to see as we look at this section as a whole. Here's the four points. Jesus is, ca- is the called high priest. He's the called high priest or the appointed high priest. Jesus is the king priest. We see this in chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. Jesus is the forever high priest, verse 11 through 24. And then Jesus is the saving high priest, the way he closes out this chapter. So all of this is based around this question. How could Jesus be the high priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi and if he's not a son of Aaron? And the author has a brilliant argument, and we're just going to read that. Can we do that? The first point, Jesus is the called high priest, or Jesus is the appointed high priest. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says this, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. We talked about Jesus's sympathy last week. We'll look at that again. Verse three, because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. He makes sacrifices for his own sins, for the people's sins. Verse four, and no man takes this honor to himself. You can't just say, I declare myself high priest, but who is called by God just as Aaron was. Verse five, So also Christ, so he's making the transition now. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become my priest, but it was he who was said to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you, Psalm 2. Verse 6, as he also says in another place, this is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, just speaking of Jesus, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, listen, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. All right, let's just stop there. First point is this, Jesus is the called high priest or the appointed high priest. Remember, here is the big issue. Chapter four ends with, Jesus is the great high priest. And the question is how? How could Jesus be the high priest if he's not a Levite, He's not a son of Aaron. We don't see him functioning as a high priest in his time on earth. How could Jesus possibly be a high priest? And that's why the author's like, let me introduce to you the order of Melchizedek. Let me introduce to you this character who is a high priest, who is also king, who David later referred to in Psalm 110, speaking of this high priest and another order of priesthood, not just the Aaronic or the Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, but let me tell you about the Melchizedek priesthood, and this is the priesthood Jesus is a part of, the greater priesthood, the first priesthood. So I want you to make sure you catch it. Jesus is the called high priest. Now, let me just share this really quick. In verse one through three, he's talking about some expectations of the high priest, and we see how that relates to Jesus. Um, We'll put these points up here for you. There's selection, sympathy, sacrifices. So here's the idea. The high priest was selected. Now, it doesn't mean he was voted in. Doesn't mean they elected him, but he was appointed by God. He was selected by God. Verse four talks about that idea that he had to be from Aaron. Uh, the Aaronic high priesthood. So he was selected by God. No one could just say, I declare myself the high priest. You couldn't do that. And so we're going to see how that speaks of Aaron's priesthood, but also Jesus' priesthood. Next, we'll look at the second one, which was simply, sim- simply sympathy, uh, that he had to have sympathy. He was weak. He suffered. He could sympathize. We saw that last week. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So there's sympathy there. 
Um, there's understanding of weakness and pain and human suffering. This speaks of the humanity. And next, obviously, sacrifices. The high priest was not, in their day, under Aaron, he was not perfect. So he, the author makes it clear. He had to actually offer up sacrifices for his own sins before he could offer sacrifices for the people's sins. Now, these are just certain expectations, and we see how Jesus, same thing, selected by God, sympathetic, understanding weakness, pain, suffering. Uh, we see that Jesus, too, not only offered sacrifice, he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so he's kind of showing, here's how the high priest is, but here's how Jesus is better. And the question of, well, how could Jesus be high priest if he's not a Levite? And that's why he brings up again in verse five and six, he says, Jesus is a son, but he's also the high priest. Now, by the way, the author loves Psalm 2 and he loves Psalm 110. If you haven't noticed this yet, the author's already quoted Psalm 2. He's already quoted Psalm 110. We've actually talked about that earlier, chapter one, chapter two. So the author keeps going back to these Psalms that are messianic Psalms, Psalms that speak of the Messiah. And he's saying, look it, Jesus is called a son and he's called the high priest. He's not just the son, but he's the high priest. People's objection, I object, he's not a Levite. And he goes, yes, he's a, he's a high priest according to Melchizedek. And he introduces this theme, and he's like, and I want to tell you more about him, but you've been dull of hearing, and that's why we're going to go to chapter 7 in a second and talk about this guy more in a second. But I want you to see what he's doing. He's saying Jesus is greater in every way. Jesus is not just a part of the priesthood from Melchizedek, but you know, your high priest had sympathy, their weakness, affliction. He was, let me talk to you about Jesus. So <clears throat> verse seven through nine is this beautiful description of just the humanity of Jesus and how Jesus became that perfect high priest, meaning he's the only one who could fulfill all things. I wanna slow down and look at verse seven through nine because maybe you read that and you go, I have some questions here. So let's relook at verse seven. Um, here's what he says, verse seven who in the days of his flesh, so when Jesus walked on the earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, which is just specific prayers, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. The author is revealing to us Jesus's humanity, his vulnerability here. Um, what he's saying in verse seven, it looks like he's actually pointing back to the garden of Gethsemane. Remember the garden of Gethsemane? That's the only time that Jesus actually makes a request to his disciples. He's like, guys, will you stay awake? Will you pray with me? Like the time we see Jesus, I have a request for you. Will you please stay awake and pray with me? And then we just see him praying these prayers. Three different times he prays. He goes back to the disciples. They're sleeping. He prays. And you just remember like God had sent an angel to strengthen him. It was such an intense moment of prayer. He's about to face the cross, crucifixion. He's about to take on the sins of the world, be cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he's about to go through the most crazy pain physically, spiritually, emotionally. And so he's praying. He needs strength. God sends an angel. He's sweating drops of blood. And here's what the author is saying. He goes, listen, he offered up these prayers with cries to God who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Now the question is, wait a second, I thought he died. He did die, but he was delivered from death, the resurrection. And so the idea is, man, yeah, he was heard. God did hear his prayer. He did resurrect his son, obviously. But he was delivered from death in that way. But he's showing you, look at the vulnerability, look at the humanity, look at the suffering of Jesus. And that's what he continues with now. Look at verse eight. It says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Let me just say this. Um, it's not that Jesus went from being disobedient to obedient. That's not the point the author's trying to make. Because he already talked about how Jesus was sinless. He's not saying that Jesus was disobedient and now needed to become obedient through suffering, but he learned the full spectrum of obedience through suffering. So here's the idea. Jesus learned what it, obedience was, like, what it would feel like, what it looked like, what it was through suffering. So the point is, the author's making is, suffering was a great teacher for Jesus. If suffering's a great teacher for Jesus, it's a great teacher for us. Now, I think we need to have a, a probably a better, healthy, healthier understanding of suffering um, let me just kind of give up a few things. First of all, there might be suffering in my life or your life because of decisions we've made. I might be suffering because of something I have chosen to do, something going against God, and so I've actually brought in pain based off my decisions. Sometimes suffering is completely out of our control, obviously, and that's why we, we give credit to sin. We'd say God created everything good and perfect. Man decided to rebel and turn against God. God allowed man to have a choice to do that. So sin came into the world because of our decision. So when you see death, when you see cancer, when you see pain, when you see COVID-19, when you see these things happening, it's like, it's, did God do this? No, it's really God allows this because we brought sin into the world. So we might be suffering from a decision we made. We might be suffering from a decision Adam made, <laughs> and that's still affecting us today. 
of, uh, we're, we're seeing it just from just how sin plagues everything. And then suffering also might be just something God allows to mature us, to make us more complete. Um, not all suffering is from God and not all suffering is not from God. What I think we need to understand, because sometimes you have people on crazy spectrums where like, God never wants me to suffer ever. And then you have people who say, are almost like to the other extreme where it's like, if I'm suffering, it's because of something I've done and God just wants me to suffer. And the Bible kind of has more of a complete holistic view of suffering. And here's what I do want us to see, because in this passage, we're seeing that, you know what? Jesus did learn obedience through suffering, that suffering was a great teacher. We're told in James 1 to count it all joy when we fall into various trials and tribulations, knowing that it just produces patience and maturity and hope, and it just produces a lot within us. And the point is, again, this. If suffering was a great teacher for Jesus, it's probably going to be a great teacher for us. It's not necessarily that God is, like, loving and longing, like, I can't wait to make them suffer. It's not that. It's that God will actually use how sin plagues everything, and he'll use it in a redeemable way and say, you know what? Sin does plague everything, but let me just, let me actually use suffering to mature people. Let me use suffering to make people more complete. Let me use suffering to bring people to me, to, to really put the most important things first and to re, reorganize their life in the way they're doing life. Suffering is a great teacher. Martin Luther um, uh, said this. He goes, the greatest book in my library is called Affliction. And there was no book in his library called Affliction. He just, the greatest book in my library is, is Affliction. He goes, this has taught me the most. Suffering, affliction, pain, you know, there's a verse that talks about through many trials you enter the kingdom, um, through much tribulation. So my point is this, we can fight suffering, and I understand that. We can be frustrated by suffering, I understand that. But the way we're to look at and approach suffering is, God, what is it you want me to learn? What are you trying to do? What do you want to produce? Jesus learned obedience through suffering, not that he was disobedient and became obedient, but Jesus knows now, wow, um, I can relate to mankind in this way that it is difficult to obey or surrender your will to the Father's will under intense moments of suffering, and yet that's what he did. He surrendered his will to the Father's will, not my will, but let your will be done. And so we learn from Jesus how to suffer well. We learn from Jesus how to obey well, how to say, not my will, but your will be done. And I want to keep going with this because the author is trying to say, look at our high priest. He's, he's greater. He's greater in every way. He's a greater priesthood, Melchizedek, and just even in sympathy. And verse 9 says this, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all ob who obey him. So the question people ask, was Jesus not perfect? What he's not saying is he was not perfect. He's saying he became the perfect savior. He became the perfect high priest, meaning Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to be the high priest who walked among us. Jesus had to be the person who did not just live in a palace far away or live in a temple far away, but actually who walked among us and suffered with us and became the perfect one, the only one who could truly redeem us and save us. And he goes, and to all those who obey him. Like there's a side of this where Jesus fully obeyed and now there's expectation for us to obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. I mean, there's just a simple side of, guys, we can say we believe in Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, but sooner or later, we have to obey Jesus. It's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus. I've talked to so many people who go, I believe in Jesus. Like, yeah, but do you obey him? John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a side of this, like, do we truly, we'll obey him, we'll follow him. He learned it, we learn it. So here's what I'm trying to bring up. Jesus is the called high priest. He's the appointed high priest. He is the high priest that we were longing for and looking for in every way. Tempted, suffered, trials, tribulations, and yet without sin, and yet made complete. And that is the idea behind this. Now, remember how it ends, verse 10 and 11. He goes, I want to tell you about this Melchizedek guy and how Jesus is part of that, but you become dull of hearing. So we're going to get back to verse 12 and, and, chapters, and chapter 6 next week. We'll get back to that. But he kind of can't resist, which I like about the author. He's like, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. Chapter 7, let me tell you about this Melchizedek. So let's go to the second point. Uh, Jesus is the king priest. The author now tells us about this guy, Melchizedek. So here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. So actually chapter six ends, if you read, he still talks about this forerunner um, has been, uh, he entered for us, even Jesus having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he kind of transitions back in chapter six to chapter seven. Chapter seven, verse one, listen to this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, he blessed Abraham. To whom also Abraham, he gave a 10th part of all, he gave a tithe, first being translated king of righteousness, his name, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. 
He is without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Um, Who is this Melchizedek guy? Why is he so mysterious? Where do we see him in the Bible? Let me just point this out. We see him, first of all, in Genesis 14, and there's literally only three verses about him. Uh, Let me give the context. Uh, Abraham, who's an incredibly wealthy guy, who was, remember, called by God to be the father of many nations. Abraham, in a sense, is like the first Jew, the first person to be the father father of faith, really, of our faith, of the Jewish faith. So Abraham has a nephew named Lot. Lot, as you know, went to this area called Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and he wanted to basically just do life there. Um, That's where he wanted to raise his family and make money. Anyways, there was like different little city-states that where they had kings and rulers, small little cities, small little city-states, and there was a battle where four kings got and attacked five kings, one of those kings being the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the idea. Lot lives there, his city lost. The winners, those other kings, take him captive as slave, Abraham, who's just, I don't know, thug, he's awesome. Abraham, like, let me get my trained servants. We're told that Abraham had 318 servants. So Abraham's an incredibly wealthy guy. He's a smart guy. He trains his servants in warfare, probably before this time. But he has his 318 servants who now go and attack these kings who beat, just beat five other armies. And he's like, let me go get back a lot. Let me go get back the loot from that war. Let me get back the stuff. So long story short, you can read about it in Genesis 14, but Abraham goes and attacks and he wins. He gets back lot. He gets back all the possessions. He gets back everything. So Genesis 14 now, we see Abraham meeting this guy named Melchizedek and he gives him a tithe, the 10th of all. So let's just read this. It's Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. We'll put the verses up here or you can turn there, but Genesis 14, here's our introduction to Melchizedek. It just begins this way. Then Melchizedek, after Abraham won, took all the spoils of war. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, he brought out bread and wine. I think that's incredibly significant. They're about to have communion. (laughs) And it says he was the priest of God most high. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. That's it. Next time he's mentioned is in Psalm 110, where David talks about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. And then it talks about how he's called according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is all that they had to base it off of. So what, what is happening here? Who is Melchizedek? First things I want you to notice, he's the king of Salem and he's the priest of the most high God. He's a king who's priest. He's the priest king. He's the king priest. That is very significant. He also serves the one true God. And if you have questions like me on this guy, you're going, wait a second, Abraham was called by God to be the father of nations. Are you telling me God had another priest who, serviced, who worshiped him? Yeah. It's interesting. In scriptures, there always seems to be a remnant where God, like Elijah, Elijah's like, I'm the only prophet who serves you. I'm the only prophet left alive. And God's like, I have a lot more you don't know about. There's always seems to be a remnant of people that God is like, I have set aside for, for me, for my work. And so this guy was a king who's a priest. Now, he says the king of Salem. By the way, um, you can, when we, when we go to Israel, you'll go to the Dead Sea and they believe and they found like, uh, they believe they found little areas where Sodom and Gomorrah was, which is not too far from going up to Jerusalem. So this king of Salem, by the way, is the king of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So he's the king of this city where God will forever put his name. Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, eventually in the future, not yet, Remember, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become slaves in Egypt. They're taken out of Egypt. Eventually, they establish. I mean, really, a thousand years later, they're going to have a kingdom set up under Abraham. But there's already a person in Jerusalem who's a priest and a king who's worshiping the one true God. That's unbelievable to me. Like Jerusalem itself, God's like, that's my city. That's my place. Actually, here's the verse. Uh, It says it in 2 Kings 21.4. The Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. There's actually like, I don't know, I found like 30 other verses that say a similar thing. God's like, I've stamped my name in Jerusalem. Here is this guy who is the king priest of Salem, the city of peace, which would be Jerusalem. This is very interesting for many reasons. Let's just start here. He's the king who's priest. He's the priest who's king. Again, I want to be really clear. In Jewish law and the way that 
you see the nation of Israel unfold, you could never be a priest and a king. No high priest could ever become king. No king could ever become high priest. Actually, there's a couple times where you saw kings who wanted to be like priests. Remember Saul? Saul, who was the first king of the nation of Israel. Saul's waiting for Samuel to uh, offer a sacrifice. He's like, Samuel's not here. I'll just do it. Saul becomes a priest and offers a sacrifice. And God at that point goes, he's done. He's done being king. I'm going to raise up another king. That was David. Um, we also see another guy, King Uzziah. King Uzziah was actually a really great king. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 26. Really great king, prosperous, ki- prosperous king, did a lot of things well. King Uzziah, just, he wanted to go into really the, the tabernacle, and he just wanted to offer the Lord incense. But that was a priestly duty. He offers the Lord, or he goes into the temple to offer the Lord incense, and it says he's immediately covered in leprosy. Whenever someone tried to take on a position that God did not call them to, there was a consequence. God was like, hey, the office of a priest and king was to be separated. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. Um, Even think about today. But he goes, the office of a priest and king was to be separated. But yet there is one priest king. And his name obviously is Jesus. And this priest king was Melchizedek. And it's just interesting because you're going, how is he priest and king? Why would God allow that? How is he the king of, of Salem? What is this about? How is he a priest and king? And then later we see Jesus come on the scene who's also called the great high priest and is also called the king of kings. So we have Jesus being the highest priest of all, the perfect priest, the complete priest, who's also the king of kings. And Melchizedek, just the fact that he has these two offices speaks of Jesus. Now, let me again, just a little side note. Some people think that Melchizedek is a Christophany of Jesus. Like, what's a Christophany? Maybe you've heard that term theophany or Christophany. A theophany is God appearing in the Old Testament. A Christophany is Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament. I personally don't believe Melchizedek was a Christophany. I think from this text we see here, he really truly ruled and reigned in a city. Now, I don't think that was Jesus. I think this was this guy. I believe he was a type of Jesus. I believe he's a forerunner of Jesus, meaning you look at his life and you look at his role in his office and how it spoke of Jesus, how his life represented the priest king that would be to come. Now, let me actually point this out. This is a fun fact. This is like Bible nerd stuff. I hope you like this. I hope you enjoy this. Um, there was a prophecy that the Messiah who was to come would actually be a priest and a king. Now, this is Old Testament. This isn't like the church making this up. This was actually Zechariah chapter six saying, there's gonna be someone who comes who's both a priest and king. And yet Jews in their mindset would go, that's bizarre because no one could be priest and king, but yet the Messiah, Jesus was. Here's the verse, Zechariah chapter six, verse 13. Speaking of the day Jesus comes and rules and reigns physically on earth, uh, we would say in a second coming, listen to this. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. Throne means king. He shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, between the priest and the king. Man, there's a day where they're saying the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be on his throne, and he's going to be the priest. This office that we never see really being mixed together except in Melchizedek. This is the only time we see a priest king, and Jesus is that priest king that was promised in Zechariah 6. Now, let me just, let me just stop here and just say this, because this cannot just be information to us. This is not just theology, you guys. This is reality. Jesus is the priest king. Jesus is the king who is priest. We need to understand here that Jesus is the king of kings, that what he says goes, that he's not just making suggestions in my life and your life. He's not just trying to say, hey, I I think you should live this way. And if you live this way, you'll have a better life. He said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Hey, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. My commandments are not a burden. 1 John 5, 4, my commandments are not a burden. God's not trying to tell us things to steal our fun. He's actually trying to give us things to increase our joy. And I think this is so important because I feel like oftentimes in the church, like you can read God's word and say, well, I don't know if the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this, but does God's word say it? <laughs> like you get in these conversations with people and it's like, but if God's word says it, I don't, don't try to dismiss it and act like, well, the Holy Spirit's not telling me to do this. If God's word says it, the Holy Spirit is saying it. God is saying, Jesus is king. What he says goes. This is his kingdom, man. We're to pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, Obviously, heaven is heaven because Jesus is king there. And guess what? We're to be those who are bringers of the kingdom to earth, saying we want to live out the rules of the kingdom. We want to live out the law of the kingdom, which is simply love. But we want to bring heaven to earth and let Jesus be the king with the kingdom. This is truly his kingdom, and he is the king of it. And this is the thing. This is not a suggestion for us. This is not like cool theory, Jesus, priest, and king. It's like he's going to come and rule and reign. We're gonna, there's going to be that physical one day of ruin and reigning, but he is the king of kings. 
And for us, this is not a suggestion. This is not like, I'll let him be king when I want him to be king. That's not how a king works. You're saying, Jesus, be king of everything. See, listen, if you're playing games with God right now, and if you're kind of on the fence with, sometimes I obey him, sometimes I don't, and that's not going to last. That's not going to work. I would say, embrace him as your king. Embrace him also as your king who's your priest, who when you do sin says, hey, guess what? I'm not just a king that necessarily rules the rod of iron, which he does, which he does, because it says that, but he's the king who's also the priest. He's also the one that says, you know what? But your sins are paid for because I laid down my life. He's the priest king. He's the king priest. Melchizedek was the king priest. And this is so interesting what he's saying. Now, let me just actually point this out. Do you notice the names here that the author brings up in Hebrews 7? And we're spending most of our time here because it's so significant. The author calls him, which his name, Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness who's over the city or the kingdom of peace. The kingdom of righteousness, the king of righteousness, and the king of peace. Notice that. And notice even in Hebrews 7, the order. It even says this. He's saying he's the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So the author is saying, not only is he the king of righteousness, which he is, but he's the king of peace. Now, I want to show you one verse that says when the Messiah comes, he will be called our righteousness. It's Jeremiah 23, 6. Listen to this. This is his name by which he will be called. Here, ready? The Lord, our righteousness. The name Jesus is given here, the name the Messiah is given, is the Lord is our righteousness. So even from the very, like we see this in the beginning, we could never attain heaven by our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness, he's our righteousness. He's how we have access to God. This king was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And I genuinely believe the order is there intentionally, meaning he's first the king of righteousness, then, then the king of peace. You want peace, you'll never have the peace of God or be at peace with God till you have the righteousness of God. First, you must have the righteousness of God. First, you must be right with God. Here's the idea. First, you must have the cross. On the cross, we see that the righteous wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and his sinless, righteous life was exchanged with us by those who believe on him. And so the idea is this, we will never know Jesus as the king of peace until you know him as a king of righteousness. If you want the peace of God right now in your life, and like this is, this season of life is bringing up a lot of anxiety, I want you to have the peace of God, but do you know him as a king, the Lord of righteousness? Do you know him as a king of righteousness? Do you know him in this way where you say, you know what, I know him through the lens of the cross. I know that he's paid for my sins. I know that God who is rich became poor so we who are poor might become rich, spiritually speaking. I know that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is the king of righteousness who gives us peace. And this order, I believe, is intentional. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Who is this? Jesus, the king of righteousness, who is the king of peace. I mean, when you read the scriptures, when you read, I don't think I would ever read Genesis 14 if it wasn't for Hebrews 7 and be like, that Melchizedek guy must be a picture of Jesus. And yet when you see the author paint the picture, you're going, oh my gosh, it's so clear. He is the priest king who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Amen. It's unbelievable how the Bible ties this together. Now, Abraham responds to this amazing priestly king who he just meets, goes, let me bless you and give you a tithe. Here's what the author says in Hebrews 7 verse 4, moving on. Now consider, listen, consider how great this man was. Do you hear that? Consider how great this guy was, Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Follow with me. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and he blessed him. He blessed Abraham who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You're like, what is going on here? Let me explain this to my best of my ability. First of all, Abraham has this amazing victory. He has these spoils of war. He meets the king priest of Jerusalem and he gives him a tithe of all. He gives him a tenth of the spoils. And the author then, I'll unpack his argument in just a second, but please follow with me. Um, tithing was something that happened before the law. I think this is important to bring up. People do act like, hey, I, I, we're under the covenant of grace. We don't need to tithe. The tithe was the law. You're right, the tithe wasn't the law, but the tithe was before the law, meaning 
there's always been within the people of God to say, God, you've been so good. I want to give you, I want to give back to you. And it seems to be that principle of 10. It seems to be that principle of tithe. The word tithe just means 10%. That's what tithe means. And there's this idea of, God, you've given me victory. You've been so good to me. Let me now give you a tenth of all. And this is significant. Because here's what I, I, just, I do want to bring up. To me, it's very unfortunate when Christians are tons, constantly trying to talk themselves out of giving. It's sad when you see, like, how can I try to spiritually look at the scriptures and do gymnastics to get out of this? When in reality, tithing is such a blessing for us. As Jesus even said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Abraham tithes, but he's receiving this blessing. Abraham's receiving this blessing from this king priest, and he's tithing to him. And I'm saying there really is a blessing that comes with giving. Let me see, my, my, honestly, my heart breaks when you see people, when I talk to people who go, you know what, I don't see the value, the purpose of it. I don't get the idea of giving. And this is kind of the idea. It's like, why, is God care, why does God care? And why does the church care so much about money? Like, it seems as if, as if God is obsessed with money and the church is obsessed with money. And my response to that is, no, you're obsessed with money. And that's why God is saying, give to release your heart from being really stingy and to be like him and be generous. It's not so much, obviously God does not need our money. Obviously he does not. God wants our heart. I believe so often our heart is tied to our money. I think right now during this pandemic, you can see everyone's first thoughts is money. It's checking the markets, the stocks. It's, uh, you, it's nonstop. It's money. It's the, and it's, it's not wrong to want to provide for your family. Money is not evil. Money is neutral. The Bible talks about money is not being evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of it, the desire to be rich, 1 Timothy 6, 9 talks about. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's neutral. The enemy can use money to do some evil things. God can use money to do some pretty great things. It's not so much that church or God's obsessed with money as much as God's like, I love you and I love your heart. And guess what? Your heart is so wrapped in money. When you give money to me, um, you're giving your heart to me. You're showing me that what's more important, that's me. That money does not control me, that God controls me. And yet I see the church so often miss out on generosity or giving or say, ah, oh, tithing, that's an Old Testament thing. I, I, and yes, this is an Old Testament, but understand before the law was given, before Moses, Abraham was tithing. And there is a side of this where you just see there's, a, there's just that natural response of, God, you've been so good, I want to give back to you. So I'd say this, instead of trying to make this like gymnastics around um, justifying why you don't give, maybe you just need to pray and say, Lord, why am, I so, why am I not generous? Why don't I love to give cheerfully? What is that within me? When God says, you've been robbing me, and people go, how have we been robbing you, God? And he goes, well, you haven't been bringing me the tithe. And the idea was, you bring your best. We, a lot of times, can bring our last. It's the last check we write. It's the last thing we do. God's like, I want your first fruits. I want the best. You know, I, I mean, we were talking about this. We have a mango tree. We've never ate, eaten the fruit of, it, fruit of it yet. We have a mango tree in our front yard. And we're starting, I never understood first, first fruits. Like I never understood it. But now I get it. There's mangoes that are really big that came months ago. They're still not ready. And there's little tiny mangoes that are now starting to bud. And so we're like, oh my gosh, these are the first fruits. And this is what God was like, give me the first fruits, which I can imagine would be so hard because even us were like, we cannot wait to eat the first mangoes. And God's like, I want those. Give me your first. And there's a side of it where you're going, well, that means I have to trust you that more mangoes will grow or whatever the fruit is. I have to trust you that more of it will grow. God, you get my best, you get my first, and I'm just trusting that more is gonna come. And really, that's what giving and tithing does. It just, God, I'm trusting you. You get my first, you get my best, and I'm trusting that more will come. Now, here's his argument. In case you didn't catch, I wanna like, bring it back. He, he is saying, look at Abraham tied to this king priest. There was no Levites. Remember, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel, one of them being Levi. Levi was the priestly tribe, if you remember. And he's saying, and this might be sound so weird, but he's like, even in a sense, so to speak, Levi gave to Melchizedek through his father, Abraham, because Levi was in his father's loins. And if you don't understand what that means, ask someone. Um, but, the, but the idea was like, in a way, Levi even gave through Abraham to this guy. And here's his point. Abraham received the blessing. And here's the key phrase in verse seven. The lesser is blessed by the better. The lesser is blessed by the better. Abraham was blessed by the better. Abraham, and you don't, if you don't get the author's like, like almost enthusiasm, he's like the patriarch of our faith, like the patriarch, Abraham, is acknowledging I'm tithing to you. I'm receiving blessing from you. You are the better. You are the better. And the author of Hebrews, and follow with me, is saying Jesus is a part of that priesthood. Jesus is a part of the priesthood that came before Levi, the better priesthood. The lesser is blessed by the better, the better be Melchizedek, the better speaking to Jesus. Make sense? Follow me? Yeah? I'm just really hoping at home. I was like, I'm starting to get this. The loin thing was weird, but I'm starting to get this. Um, and so that's what he's saying is, look, 
we see that he is a better high priest. He is the king priest. Now, number three, we're going to keep trekking our way through this. Number three is this, and we'll, we'll start picking up some speed. Jesus is the forever high priest. Jesus is the forever high priest. Look at verse 11 now. He says, therefore, in light of this, in light that he's better, in light that the lesser is blessed by the better, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far, far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the forever high priest. This is used six times, this word forever. Um, it's trying to emphasize what Jesus has done is forever who he is, how long it lasts, forever. Uh, he cannot stress this enough. And here's what he's saying. By the way, think about this. Melchizedek, as he said in verse three, had no father, mother, not, not literally. There's, we're not given that genealogy. Genesis is filled with genealogies. It's filled with them. This guy's not given one. And it's supposed to communicate the fact that his priesthood is eternal. We don't know where he came from. We don't know when he died. The Bible records that for a lot of significant characters. The author is making the argument, and you know why it's not recorded? Because his priesthood is supposed to be forever. David is the one who wrote that in Psalm 110. Again, in verse 17, he quotes this again. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So David's even recognizing this guy who came out of nowhere, no father, no mother, no death on paper, even though he did. But he's just saying this guy is speaking of the forever priesthood. And Jesus is that forever priest. Jesus, who he acknowledges, is from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. So you see how Jesus fits the kingly title. But it, the issue again of how is he a priest? Well, according to the order of Melchizedek. So I just want you to follow his logic here, what he's saying and how it goes on forever. He'll actually repeat this in another way. But look at verse 18 and 19. Let's slow down on this. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Uh, on the other hand, there is the bringing uh, in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. What is he saying? The author in chapter eight is going to get into this more, how the law is better. He says it here clearly. We'll read it in a second as well. The law is better. The law that we have under Christ is better than this law. He's focused on the priesthood, but here's his point. Since the priesthood changed, the priesthood changed, Aaronic priesthood, now to Melchizedek priesthood. Since the priesthood had changed, the law is now changed. New priesthood, new order, new order, new law. And so that will be chapter eight. And I'm gonna wait to hold off to speaking into that. But he makes this little comment. Notice at verse 18 and 19, he goes, and this is what we do with like kids sometimes. On the one hand and on the other hand, this is what he actually says, verse 18. On the one hand, on the one hand, there's a knowing of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect. On the one hand, he's like, the law is weak and unprofitable, and the law perfects nothing. Here's his argument. On the one hand, all the law can do is say, hey, look, it's a mirror. Look, you're pretty bad. You look in the mirror, if you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my gosh, my hair, my teeth, this stuff, and you're like crazy. That's the law. The law is like, hey, look it, you're really bad. You fall short of all of these rules and lists. So on the one hand, the law is weak. It does expose, but notice says, on the other hand, he actually sees the value of the law. Verse 19, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You know what the law does? The law goes, ah, I don't like this. I fall short of this. What does it do for me? You know what it does? It creates hope. Well, guess what? Guess what? This was never meant to save you. This was never meant to bring you life. The law actually produces hope of, will there be anyone who will keep this law? The law actually kind of is supposed to bring in hope where you're now like hungry for hope. This is what you long for. And the hope is someone did keep the law on your behalf. The hope is someone did fulfill the law. His name is Jesus. The hope is that you don't have to try to do good things to be right with God. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Um, the hope points us to Jesus. The law falls short in so many ways, but he says on the one hand, it's weak and unprofitable. On the other hand, the law stirs within us hope for someone who fulfilled this. Isn't that good news? The law should actually produce hope. So is the law bad or wicked? No. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter eight. The law's not bad. It's not wicked. It's not messed up. It's not, but you know, the law is supposed to create hope and a longing for the one who fulfilled it all. All right, keep going. Verse 20. 
It says this, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have, so he had an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by whom he said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hey, the author repeats himself a lot. So if you ever catch me repeating myself, um, the Bible does it. Verse 22, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Oh, circle better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Remember the big section? Jesus is the forever high priest. He has an unchanging priesthood. They he said, didn't have an oath. It was just by birth. Jesus has an oath. The oath that David wrote in Psalm 110, that, hey, this is now what you're part of, the order of Melchizedek, this forever priesthood. Now, verse 22 is so clear. I want us to like read that again. So much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Uh, this word surety, which is hard for me to even say, here's what that means. It simply means this, which I can find my notes. I promise I'll be there. Surety uh, is one who guarantees that the terms of agreement will be carried out. He's saying Jesus is the one who's guaranteeing that the terms will be carried out. How do I know it's fulfilled? How do I know it's done? How do I know there's a new priest? Jesus is the, that co-signer, if you will, to say, hey, I got you. He's the one who's the bail bond person. Like, I'm bailing you out. I'm the surety of this. It's going to happen. It's done. It's confident. And I love that, that just these two words, better covenant. That's going to be chapter eight, better covenant, better priest, high priest, Jesus, better Moses, better Aaron, better Melchizedek, better covenant. We have a new covenant, which we'll get to in chapter eight, but it's better. And it's, listen to this. It's not just better. It's forever. It's not that, oh, one day this is going to change again, but he's, it's a better covenant that is forever. So then now he transitions, and here's how we're going to end. It's number four, verse 25 through 28. Jesus is the saving high priest. He's the forever high priest, but he's the high priest who saves. Verse 25, listen to this. Therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't, it's hard for me to even try to teach this verse. I almost want you just to read and enjoy this verse. This is one of those verses where like, I, you have to stop and slow down and be like, Lord, help me take this in. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So he's saying he can save anyone. He can save anywhere. He can save at any time under any circumstances to the uttermost. I don't know if I fully feel the weight of that. I think there are people in my mind I dismiss. God, they're, just, they're not going to believe in you. They're just so far from you. They're bitter at you. They're angry. They've gone through some crazy stuff. And he's like, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. I would say this, come to God through Jesus. Um, come to Jesus. All of those who are weary and heavy laden, come to Jesus. Anyone and everyone, the door is open. Come to Jesus. He said, I'm the door. Come to Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He goes, he can save anyone. Doesn't matter what you've done, who you are. You've done some terrible things. Guess what? That's what God's really good at saving anyone to the uttermost. It's funny. There's a story of a guy named Billy Sunday who is like a famous preacher, but Billy Sunday was actually in the major leagues. He's a baseball player, um, and he was a pretty good baseball player. His story goes that um, after the major leagues, he just became a drunk. His life just kind of went away. He lived on the streets. He lived in the gutters, and Billy Sunday got saved, believed in Jesus. He just changed his life dramatically. Billy Sunday was known for like preaching like crusade type of things, kind of like Billy Graham, and Billy Sunday would take this verse, and I just thought this was funny and worth sharing. He would say, not only does he save to the guttermost, but he, or to the uttermost, but he saves to the guttermost. And then he would share his testimony, like, I lived in the gutters. If you think you can't be saved, listen, he saves to the guttermost. And that's how he would share about his own faith. And I love that thought of, you know what, it's true. Jesus can save to the guttermost, to the uttermost. To those who we might dismiss and say, there's no way. They just said some terrible things about God yesterday. They said, F God, I want nothing to do with him. And they're, they're rebellious, they're flipping him off. And God's like, and I can save you. God's like, there's no one too far from me. My love, um, I guess nothing can get in the way of that. And he's like, he can save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And, and there's that invitation. There's that now, that invite of come to God through Jesus. If you've never come to God through Jesus, I would encourage you right now to stop even reading, just come to God through Jesus. Say, okay, God, I believe this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm gonna come to you through him. You said that if I believe on him, if I believe on him, I'm set free. If I believe on him, I'm a son indeed. If I believe on him, okay, I believe that. 
come to God through Jesus, he can save to the uttermost. And it says this, he always lives to make intercession for them. Just even that phrase, if you get a chance, please read the story of Zechariah 3, where the high priest has standing before God, he becomes like filthy rags. Satan is there accusing him. He's like mocking him, belittling the high priest. The angel of the Lord, which I believe is a Christophany. If you want to know what Christophany is, go read Zechariah 3. And the angel of the Lord says, go put on new garments on him. And he basically goes from the priestly garments, which were really nice garments, expensive, wealthy garments, to being clothed in God's righteousness, to being covered in new garments. And here's the idea, that angel of the Lord that appeared before him, that he's making intercession for him. He was saying, yeah, 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 Satan, you're right. Everything you say about him is right. Everything Satan says about me is probably right. The, the sin in my life, all, all that, he's not necessarily wrong, but I'm clothed in his righteousness. I have one who m- makes intercession for me. I have one who says, yeah, yeah, but I paid for that account. It's paid for, it's done. He's able to save to the uttermost, those who come to God from him, through him. Listen, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That is not a, a if you, it's not like a maybe, maybe he will. That is a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. So draw near to him. And don't just say, well, I have. Because if you really have, he would have drawn near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's keep ending. Verse 26, it says, for such a high priest was fitting for us. Listen, why? He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This he did once for all. If you would at home, just, you know, humor me, just say once for all. I'm imagining you're saying it. He died, he did this once for all, once for all, once for all. That just stands out. Jesus doesn't need to make a sacrifice for his sins. He doesn't. He was the sacrifice. Other high priests do, not Jesus. And he did this once for all. You can't re-crucify him. You can't re-sacrifice him. He did it once for all. And then the last verse, verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. The law has appointed weak high priests, but not Jesus. His whole thing is nothing is lacking in Jesus. There is no weakness in Jesus. Everything you need is in Jesus. Not that he went from imperfect to perfect. That's not the idea. It's that he's the complete high priest, meaning he did, he had to become a man. He had to suffer under us, <laughs> under sin, under, he had to suffer from what we did to him. And he became that complete high priest. He completed and perfected everything that we needed to be done because of what he went through. Listen, Jesus is the forever high priest. Jesus is the high priest who saves us. Jesus is the king priest. He's worthy of all honor and glory and praise, and yet he also meets our needs as a priest and comes to us as a priest. Jesus is everything our hearts have longed for. The reason, again, why today I wanted to take 5, 1 through 11 and and all of chapter 7 is to really show what the author's trying to say. How could Jesus be the high priest, not being a Levite, not being under Aaron? Oh, he's under a better priesthood the priesthood of Melchizedek, the kingly and priestly uh, priesthood. He's under uh, the priesthood where he's both the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the one who lasts forever, the one who died and did everything once for all. This is Jesus. And he's saying, this truth of Jesus should change how you live. Who Jesus is, what he's done, what he claims, what he said. This is not just cool information to go, that's some fun facts about Melchizedek, that is not the point. That is to set us free, man. That is to say, man, we have a high priest in heaven who, does, who, who meets all of our needs in every way. We have a high priest in heaven who's also the king of kings, who's also on the throne, who Zechariah prophesied would be the king on his throne and be the priest, and that's Jesus. It's all fulfilled and met in Jesus. My hope today is that this is more than news to you, that it is good news, that it's good news that sets you free, that it's something you can say, I, I'm gonna live into this, I'm gonna walk into this, I'm gonna accept this, believe this. Um, I'm gonna come to God through Jesus and not just put off that invitation any longer, but that you'd come to him through Jesus. Amen? Let me just pray really quick. Don't leave, don't turn it off. We have a couple announcements and then the questions we're gonna put up for you. So just, if you would, let's just pray really quick. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, that you made a way for us through Jesus. We thank you that he is the greater priesthood, God, that he's the greater Melchizedek, that he's the forever high priest, that he's everything we've needed, we, f- we find in, in you, Jesus. And God, I just ask that um, we would not get sidetracked. We would not seek 
the king of peace without knowing the king of righteousness, that we would know you this way, that we'd come to the cross and experience your forgiveness this way. Um, Jesus, I ask that you take your word here, God, that it would just create that hope, that hope that is fulfilled in Jesus, that better hope, that better covenant, that we are under a better covenant. Let us understand that and believe that and walk in that. So we just thank you, Jesus. There is no one like you. And we ask that you go before us in our groups, in our homes, in our conversations, and that it would just bring our attention and focus to you in your name. Amen. Um, I, I do want to share a couple quick things. As I mentioned, there's a few Zoom groups happening today. Listen, I know we see this every week, but please don't be too shy. or that, Just sign up. Um, you'll see some friendly faces. Talk to them. Ask questions about this text. They're there to just meet needs, to talk, to communicate, to do life. Um, but we'd say make the most in this season. I do want to remind you, um, if the Israel thing is something you go, you know what? We'd love to make this happen. Um, we don't know if we want to wait five years. We'll be around in five years. Just come. We'd love for you to sign up. So go to events. Go to Israel. Click on that. You'll get all the details there. You can email us if you have any questions. Um, we would love to be a part of this with you and go through the scriptures in this way, like while we're actually standing there. So we'd love for you to be a part of that with us. And um, Listen, we did talk today about giving and giving God our best. And if you would like to give, please know that you can give online. Um, please know that this is not necessarily because we need this as much as God wants us to do this for our heart idols, to be surrendered to him, to be a people that is generous. And um, it's a blessing. It's true. It's true. What Jesus said, we found it true in our own lives. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you just pray through what that looks like, we'd ask that you would give online and give them that way. And if you have any needs at the same time, go to COVID-19, click on that form and uh, fill out the request. We'd love to help meet needs at the same time. Um, guys, that's it. We love you. We're going to put on the screen now some questions for you to discuss. Take some pictures. It might be on social media as well, but take some pictures of the questions and um, be able to discuss them now with your family or friends or save them from your Zoom group later today. Love you guys. We will hopefully see you in Zoom groups and God bless you. Bye.